this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Marlon Brando tells his own story through his private audio recordings, conversations, and self-hypnosis in the riveting new documentary, Listen to Me, Marlon. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. A streetcar named Desire, On the Waterfront, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, these are just a few movies with iconic Brando performances. Before watching the new documentary, Listen to Me, Marlon, my perception of Marlon Brando was perhaps quite similar to many other film lovers. One of cinema history's greatest actors, a master of his craft, but Brando was also a reluctant celebrity who became increasingly difficult to work with and suffered much tragedy towards the end. Reading that this new documentary was Brando himself in a free-flowing narration, I was thinking, are we going to be hearing the ramblings of Colonel Kurtz for two hours? But I was totally taken aback by the Brando speaking in director Stephen Riley's film. How smart, funny, narcissistic and damaged, sure, but with an incredible understanding of the human condition, his own and in general. This is not so much a biography as it is a life journey. Ten, nine, eight, seven. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Marlon, let your mind drift back, way back in time, to a time when you were very young. It is like a wonderful, soft dream. Since I don't do anything else well, I might as well put all my energies into being as good an actor as I can. You bring part of yourself to every character, but some parts are closer to us than others. Everybody's got something they're hiding. For the making of Listen to Me, Marlon, director Stephen Riley got access through the Brando estate to boxes and boxes of Brando's personal material that have been in storage for a very long time. It turned out to be over 300 hours of audio tape recordings, conversations, diaries, even self-hypnosis. In the film, these are mixed with excerpts of Brando's films and archival footage. The result of hearing Brando tell his own story is really quite emotional. Marlon seems haunted by memories of his childhood, an alcoholic mother, an abusive father, a longing to understand and better himself. And I found it revelatory to not have other interviews or talking heads giving their side of Brando's story. Here, Marlon owns his story, even after death. Listen to Me, Marlon is one of the documentary features submitted for the 2015 Oscar race, and I'm very happy to be joined by director Stephen Riley. I started by asking Mr. Riley what Brando kept and recorded and why he thought he kept all this personal documentation. Not just tapes, but, you know, everything within his drawers, um, around the house, in his cabinets and, and uh, cupboards. They filmed the interior of his home after his passing, and within within the drawers I mentioned, there was you know there was objects and knickknacks and um, and all sorts of things that he'd categorise and store. The stuff he would collect were his um, audio tapes, 
but he'd record those for many different reasons. Um, uh, he was dyslexic, and I think that he would prefer to keep an, an audio uh, record of things rather than write things down. And the, the kind of things that he would record would be business meetings that he would take. Um, he would um, record just little you know, notes to self, things he was interested in, maybe you know, lines from books or vocabulary. He would um, have many uh, extensive preparations, creative preparations for all of his roles, which was interesting. I mean, everyone thought that he didn't really pay much attention to his acting, but you know, he very clearly did. And... Um, he would also have, you know, tapes he'd record with his, with his family, um, um, answer phone messages, the, the lot. What is the self-hypnosis? What was he actually doing? And what, what did he want to achieve with that? Well, that was one of the earliest tapes that I listened to, in fact, which helped kind of me formulate an approach to the film, a creative approach. Um, I listened to a tape where um, I wasn't really sure what was going on initially, but, you know, but it, it became apparent that it was Marlon speaking to himself um, trying to um, uh, take himself into a state of hypnosis and regressive hyp- hypnosis where he would venture back into his early um, childhood and was trying to locate the source of his problems, which he thought echoed through the entire course of his life and how damaging those early years um, had been to his character and the habits that he picked up. Um, so, uh, yeah, those regressive hypnotherapy tapes were, you know, were incredibly personal and some, almost too personal in, in a regard. It feels very strange listening to those. He does self-analysis and it revolves around a lot about his childhood. Um, tell me a little bit about what his father was like that you found. Um, well, his, um, what Marlon speaks about his dad as, as being you know, a very severe man, um, uh, very masculine in terms of his approach to life. He was um, not particularly sensitive when it, came to, when it came to his kids. And Marlon felt you know, very much unattended to and unloved in his early years and, and developed what he calls a very deep sense of inferiority from his dad. His dad was short on praise. And even when Marlon won his Oscar in uh, on the waterfront as a revealing film interview that you see in the in the, in the documentary, where um, uh, Brando's dad is being you know asked to um, on a talk show about you know how he feels about his son's um, Academy Award and he and he it's very telling and how he describes that you know he's not proud of Marlon at all for that. Stella Adler, um, the great sort of acting coach um, became sort of a surrogate mother and which seems fitting because method acting if I'm not mistaken it seems to be very psychoanalytical by nature celebrity was obviously not his cup of tea but what did you think acting did for him I think it was his passion I think he was certainly an artist and uh, really did care about his work um and uh, you know, and that really dispels one of the major myths about Brando that you know that he, he didn't he he wasn't bothered. I mean, certainly he's he's responsible for a lot of that myth taking hold because he would always seek to defile uh, his status as um, as a big celebrity and would and would diminish his his work as an actor. But in these private audio recordings, you find out that he was you know he he was very much an an idealist when it came to his work. Um, and acting was, you know, a real catharsis for him, you know, I think in terms, in, in, in a creative sense, but also in a way to exercise emotions right. um, that, that he said, you know, I mean, acting allows you to express yourself in ways that you can't do in real life. You might be otherwise inhibited 
to reveal. But that was a double-edged sword too, because you know when you hear him, um, you know, talking about his experiences in Streetcar um, and the stage production of that, you know, in fact, that method acting, that reenacting all the problems of his uh, of his childhood, because his character Stanley Kowalski, you know, had real parallels to his own father. Um, reenacting that violence of his dad every night actually was was too much, and is what caused him to leave the theatre. So, um, so acting was, um, you know, yeah, it provided a a way to um, to express. But it was also, um, um, you know, it, it, you know they, they, they weren't always things that you really wanted to revisit. You know, they weren't always parts of his childhood that Marlon really wanted to um, dwell on. You do it beautifully in the movie that there seems to be very much connection um, with his life and what he's talking about to the movies he's choosing and at the period that he does them, like you were mentioning, Stanley Kowalski and his father. Um, is that a connection you made, or do you think he was doing this kind of consciously or subconsciously choosing these roles? Well, you know, Marlon actually mentions, he says in the documentary, that you, know, you bring part of yourself to every character, um, but some parts ended up being closer to him than others were. And certainly, you know, with Stanley, you know, he talks, he says that the character was, was derived from his experiences when he was young, and the anger of Stanley, you know, be, would be motivated by him remembering his his father hitting his mother. So, um, so that was laid bare, you know. And he used to, and he talk about, you know, the, his father representing, you know, the beasts and the animals, you know. And it was that same kind of feral quality that Stanley Kowalski had. Um, uh, Brando did did his best, you know, at the time and ever then afterwards to distance himself from the character of Stanley, saying that's not what he wanted to be like, which was true because he never wanted to be like his dad. But what is also fascinating is that is that Brando then started admitting um, to himself his own beast-like qualities, and then started you know using the adjective of the beast in reference to himself, with the final conclusion that sometimes you can't escape the behavior of uh, of your parents and how much that influences your own behaviors right right which is very apparent towards the end of his life with his own son of course but we talk a lot about women's appearances in the movies and you have a beautiful shot in the film i think it's a screen test correct me if i'm wrong where he's like turning around in the camera and he's just beautiful and i was noticing how beautiful his teeth are also um what was his relationship to his looks during his life you were mentioning it. He got very. He did get very heavy at the end, and had food addictions. And I think. I think there was there was a mild vanity. I think not. Maybe not much different to you know most of us. But then, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't stifling for him. And I guess he. You know, he did do lots of exercise when he was younger. But otherwise, just effortlessly good looking. Calls himself. You know, he said he was kind of attractive, which was obviously an understatement because I mean, women were falling at his feet. Um, you know, I suppose there was so much confidence and and security in his physical self and his and his appearance that maybe that was the problem when he started transitioning to being too overweight. That had never been a problem in his life, and I think he felt that he recognised that it was getting out of control a bit too late. Um, and he talks about that. You know, he said that it was a bit, of, you know, a definite issue. He said that after filming Last Tango, he spent a lot more time, you know, at home reading books and and lying on his bed. So he wasn't nearly as physical as he was previously. And those things ended up, you know, creeping up on him. Food was also provided comfort, as it did even when he was a young boy. He was a definite comfort eater. I think when um, when things were depressing or, or threatening within his home as a kid, he said he used to retreat to the kitchen and, um, you know, and go and 
and eat Charlie cheese and, and, and all the different snacks and treats in the fridge as a way to distract himself. No doubt this is a one-sided story. It's his version. Um, you've, he's narrating his own story through your thing. But between the lines, you can hear that, I mean, many people were hurt along the way. I'm sure many women were, and he talks about his children. And stuff. How self-aware do you think he was of this? Uh, I think very self-aware, and that's almost kind of what redeems him in a sense, is how honest he is about his own uh, behaviours. I mean, he talks about the fact that, you know, in his early uh, in his early years, that he was a you know, serial womanizer, that he was cheating on his wife. Um, and, um, but, but, you know, I mean, again, he doesn't excuse his behaviours, but at least he talks about it. At least he's the person addressing that and recognises that it was wrong. So, um, you know, there was a lot of damage in his wake. But then, you know, but Marlon, in some respects, was a victim too. I think that he, he always struggled to form relationships with women because he, um, uh, he had issues with, with the mother figure. You know, his mum, he felt had abandoned him for alcohol. And I think there was always a sense that, you know, other women would abandon him too. And it's, again, the, the lack of security that he'd have in relationships was, was very surprising considering he was, you know, the, the best catch on the planet. And similarly as well, you know, his relationship with his dad meant that he had issues with authority and would, you know, um, as a well, when I came to a film set and he's dealing with producers and directors, you know, that, that didn't help either. So, um, but, but he, he diagnoses that, you know, he goes to the, he, he investigates that, those parts of his character. And I think he really wanted to find solutions and to become a better person. And, you know, for him, therefore, it's very important to figure out the um, origin of these negative behaviors. When what you are is unwanted, then you look for an identity that will be acceptable. A good kind man can fool anybody. The first person that you fool was yourself. You lie for peace, you lie for tranquility, you lie for love. <laughs> I feel as though I'm coming closer to what it means to be human. You are the memories. Hit them, knock them over. With an attitude, with a word, with a look. Everybody feels like they're a fan. Everybody feels they could have been a contender. One of the things that you, that I have to admit coming into the movie that I was sort of one-sided for me, I had sort of always grown up with the Coppola version of the apocalypse now when when Brando came to the set and then the problems he caused and the money that was spent waiting for him and so on and here you let Marlon for the first time he gives his version and it's quite different were you surprised um yeah I was I've had to really investigate that quite Thoroughly, because it, it, it did, yeah, it does reverse conceptions a bit. I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd watched them um, Hearts of Darkness, and uh, Brando's made out to be, you know, he's the crazy, he's playing up, he was, you know, behaving badly on set, and or rather delaying things, that he was overweight for the film. You know, and I just think it was quite a bad rap, and, and Marlon thought so too. I mean, you hear him, you know, launching some tirade against Coppola, who he felt had um, actually betrayed him. He, he loved Coppola as a director. I think Coppola was one of the few directors that he really respected. Um, but he felt hurt when um, there was, you know, various um, uh, reports where Coppola was quoted as, as saying, and as you see here in Hearts of Darkness, you know, rubbishing Brando. Um, but Brando felt that he, um, uh, that yeah, that was a bad rap, and that, and that he was largely responsible for rescuing the movie. 
which I think is, uh, you know, not too far-fetched to acclaim because he, um, you know, I, I had access to his audio preparations for the character of Kurtz and um, and yeah, he was he was all the stream of consciousness stuff that Marlon was interested in. That was quite different to the script, you know, where Marlon was really trying to investigate the nature of pure evil. I mean, he really, I mean, he was fascinated by good and good and evil and the hypocrisy of those who think they're good because we all have potential for you know for bad. And he wanted to, he always wanted to very keen to point that kind of thing out to um, illuminate our own behaviours. But with Kurtz. Um, he wrote and ad-libbed a lot of that, a lot of the script, which Coppola admits he was struggling to close. You know, he didn't really have an ending to the film. So, and he says in, he says in Hearts of Darkness, you know, what do you do? Do you, um, do you halt the production or do you, or do you spend a few weeks improvising with the best actor on the planet? And that's exactly what he did. And it worked out. And if it overran by a week or so, I'm, I'm, I just I just thought, you know, can Marlon really be blamed for that? No, it was so interesting to hear him. And he was doing these recordings sort of at the same time that it was happening. And it, it felt very much... It, it was just... It's one of those pop cultural things that uh, being a big film fan and you've been watching Hearts of Darkness many times that it was like, woo, this it was so interesting to get that side of the story in his voice. Well, it's, I mean, you know, it's well... And it's not like, um, you know, Brando was so overweight at that point. I mean, you know, definitely put on weight in the later years, but he was no kind of more chunky than, you know, some of your other American generals like Norman Schwarzkopf. I mean, I'm sure he had, he had more pounds than Brando did for Apocalypse Now. And Brando actually, you know, did affect the lighting, or the entire lighting, um, and, and the DOP backs that up. Um, the, the, the whole idea of shade and light, you know, was, was Marlon's direction for those bits. And, you know, and arguably Marlon might have been, you know, even though Marlon had his own addictions, he might have been the most sober person on set. Mm-hmm. At that point, when he arrived. <laughs> well, yeah, Hopper had definitely taken that prize. No? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so, and, I, and I think, um, you know, and there was correspondence between between them, you know, where Coppola you know, apologizing to Brandon and said he was misquoted. But, you know, it's as long as those some of those quotes ring loud and clear, then I think Marlon definitely had a right to respond, you know, as respectful as he was of Coppola. Marlon Brando, just, he, he became quite old in a generation. He was 80, correct? Um, in a generation with sort of James Dean and Marilyn. And you start the movie um, when in his older years when great tragedy has struck um, that we remember sort of with his household, a murder that happened there. So it must have been quite hard in his elder years. Was that your impression from the tapes? Um, I think, well, certainly the self-hypnosis tapes, um, they were from um, the last several years. His, the, the killing that you mentioned where, where Marlon's son shot um, his half-sister's boyfriend in the family home um, would lead to um, his son Christian going to, going to prison. And then, and then later on, his daughter um, would commit suicide as well in, um, related to those events. Um, and so Marlon, yeah, I mean, from in his last last nine years I think he was undergoing severe amounts of stress and and he had physical symptoms too you know there was uh, he talks about panic attacks and uh, high heart rate and blood pressure and I think he was you know I think those meditation tapes and self-hypnosis tapes were a genuine attempt to calm himself down and to alleviate those symptoms and um, you know of course he never got over the, the, the grief of losing his daughter but you know he did say that, that meditation and um, um, you know, did do a lot of good as well, and help to and help to you know um, alleviate the symptoms as I mentioned. You know, quite a lot by the time of his death, and provide some measure of peace. And this is sort of what you were mentioning earlier that um, sort of thinking about his own childhood and how things um, are inherited down through generations and that type of 
behavior that he seemed to be thinking about a lot at that time. Uh, yeah, he really he really did believe that the, the formative years of our life, you know, um, have a massive effect on you know right the way through to our, you know our demise, and that he he kept quoting the fact that you know that if you the Jesuit phrase that you know give me a boy until he's seven, I'll give you the man, and he he mentioned he spent the entire. Um, his entire life trying to repair the negative behaviours picked up in the first the first years of his life, and as and then he you know and as such um, you know he ascribes a lot of his own sins to his dad, but he says that his father also didn't stand a chance because his father was you know um, um, from a from a broken home too and didn't have um, didn't have his his uh, m- uh, mother around from an early age, and then you know in that dynastic. Um, progression, you know, arguably, as Marlon says, you know, I think some of his own sins and his father's sins were then passed on to his own son, Christian. So, yeah, there's there's a real Freudian thread running through all of that. Lastly, on, on a sort of happier note, um, he, I was surprised he has, an, he has an incredibly fun sense of humor. Could you describe it? Um, yeah, I was also entertained by Marlon um, in the edit. Um, you know, he'd have a great turn of phrase. I mean, arguably, there's not enough of his humor in in the film, but that's a, partly because of the you know the course of the, the, the narrative took. But there's definitely, like you say, I mean, um, but you can feel it coming in. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And he was had a very developed and sophisticated sense of humor. He had a real puerile sense too. I mean, he loved you know fart gags and fart machines and all this kind of and all this kind of stuff. But otherwise, you know, he had quite a sophisticated sense of um, you know of of of, of irony and and. Um, um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and humor per se, which I think actually was was his salvation in a, in a way. I think that's what kept him. He says that you know a good sense of humor is a real sign of um, um, uh, of, of, of mental health and sanity, and and he, and he retained that right the way through to his last years. Mr. Riley, thank you so much for joining me. Um, the movie will be shown four times here at the Stockholm Film Festival in November and um, premieres on Showtime on November 14th. That's right, right? Uh, yeah, that's right, on the 14th, exactly. And it's in cinemas in the UK um, from the 23rd oh. of, um, of October. Thank you so much for taking this time and, and again for this great movie. Pleasure, thank you. Thank you so much to director Stephen Riley. Listen to Me, Marlon is out on DVD and Blu-ray on November 23rd here in Sweden, and it's actually showing at the Stockholm Film Festival four times. If you go to our website, popcultureconfidential.com, you can get all kinds of information and links to where you can see the movie. And there's lots more happening on our Twitter, at podpopculture. So go check that out. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Karl Borg, and produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Birro. Thank you so much. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast... That's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, 
physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.